2: The New Statesman.
3: I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman, and you're listening to World Review, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I'm speaking to Maria Romanenko, a Ukrainian broadcaster and journalist living in Manchester, Mark Geliotti, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, and an expert on the Russian security services, and Jeremy Cliff, the New Statesman's writer-at-large. discuss the year that changed everything from the lives of every Ukrainian to global geopolitics. Okay, Maria, if I can start with you, can you just recall the 24th of February last year and where you were and, and what you felt when Russia invaded your country?
4: I was in the Kiev region and actually the day before, on the 23rd, I was in Poland because I have a Martinian partner and he would refuse to come to Ukraine to see me. And instead, I decided to come to Gdansk to see him there so that he would fly in from Manchester to Gdansk And we spent eight and a half days in Gdansk and then Putin did his crazy speech on the 21st of February. And after that, I just decided to go back to Ukraine because I was like, well, Ukraine is my country. I'm living here in France, kind of paying for accommodation, but I should be back home. So we flew back on the 23rd, and that was probably one of the last flights to land in Kiev. And then the same evening, my dad rang me and said that he's heard that central Kiev might not be safe that night. And I lived in Kodil, so that's very central. So we went to my dad's place, just in the Kiev region, like southwest of Kiev, and spent the night there. And then at 7 a.m. on the 24th of February, my partner woke me up, shaking me and saying that Russia has bombed Ukraine. And I was like, where have they bombed? And he was like, everywhere. So then he was like, we need to get up because I'm leaving the country. I'm going to Lviv to to cross the border and get back to the UK. And I had one hour basically to decide what I was doing as we convinced my dad to drive jazz and to drive us to to Lviv and whilst they were getting petrol because uh, getting petrol that morning was a huge challenge as well and they went to find somewhere to get some petrol for the car and whilst they were doing that, I had one hour basically to pack and decide what I was doing and then we set off to Lviv. We basically overall it took us 40 hours to, to cross the border he was very sure that he wanted to be out of Ukraine because it's not his country and he didn't want to be stuck in a war in a country that's not his own he's got friends in the UK and also he's Jewish so he comes from a background of people that if they leave it too late to leave a war, then it won't end well for them so basically he's got that ingrained in him family history. So he was very certain that he wants to leave. And I just followed him without really knowing if I even crossed the border. And but I ended up doing that. That was like kind of four days in Poland, fighting the British bureaucracy to let me into the country, because that was before the UK announced the Ukrainian schemes that they had. So I had a very special case of myself and, and trying to enter the UK.
3: I wonder if you could speak about maybe how your mindset and your attitude to the war evolved. We all remember that when the war first broke out, there was horror, but I think that the consensus in the Western intelligence community among kind of most observers, I think, possibly including some people in Ukraine, was that Ukraine would be quite quickly defeated by Russia. I think the Americans were saying that that the Russians would be in Kiev by within a few weeks or a few days. And clearly that didn't happen. I'm just wondering as the war continued and after those first few days, it, it became quite obvious that Russia's plans had not at all succeeded. How did your attitude to the war change over time?
4: I mean, all of us, when there were all the multiple threats, I mean, before the weeks before, all of us were saying but the war has been going on since 2014. For Ukrainians, the war actually had started in 2014, eight years earlier. What happened, actually, none of us expected to happen at such a big scale. I'm pretty sure that's the case. You know, a lot of people thought that something would happen, but I'm pretty sure that the vast majority, at least probably 95%, and probably including President Zelensky himself, we didn't think that things would happen at such a big scale, basically bombs just everywhere throughout the whole country. So I I think the first few days, as much as it's good to talk with um, optimism now, but I think the first uh, couple of days, things were happening so fast, and especially with the Kiev region getting occupied, you didn't really know what to expect. I think a lot of us still hoped, and that's what you can see with a lot of people who just stayed the first few days, waiting to see what happens. And even my dad was telling me, like, to convince Des, my my partner, to, to stay and see what happens. I think there were definitely still a lot of people who were kind of still hoping to wait it out and that things would be over very soon. I think a lot of the people actually had those thoughts that it would be a matter of a few days and a couple of weeks and things would end. But on the other hand, things were happening in a very unpredictable and fast fashion. And there were definitely a lot of battles that Ukraine won. And by winning those, it secured a future victory, such as that for the H- Hostomal airport. And also, I know that there was the case with the bridges that the Ukraine burned that were leading to Kyiv. And that helped, that stopped Russia from getting towards Kiev itself. So it was, things were happening so fast. It was very unexpected sort of nature. And I think at that point, it was even hard to grasp what would happen. But I think a lot of people still knew. And I think that probably comes from our Ukrainian nature. We're so patriotic and we love of our country and our land so much that we're just not prepared to leave it unless, unless you've got children or unless you've got another reason to leave. So I think there was still a lot of hope. But uh, truth be told, you know, I don't think anybody exactly knew what would happen because things would, were changing so fast. But that saying that, that, I think even if Putin did take over Kiev in three days, how he said he would, I think people would not take over the land, but not the people. People would never warm up to whatever new government they would install. You can't defend. So you can probably defeat some of our land, but you can't defeat our people and you can't win over our people.
3: When you left, did you fear that you might not be able to return? Did you think it might be possibly the last time that you would be able to see Ukraine, at least for some time?
4: I mean, there was that decision of, when I was choosing whether to stay or to go, I was like choosing between my partner and my family because I didn't know when I would see them, I guess. And I, it wasn't because I thought that that I wouldn't be able to return to Ukraine. I just didn't know whether there would be a transparent connection between, uh, between Ukraine and, you know, because as we see now, a year later, Things actually, the transport connection is actually quite good. It takes a very long time to get to Ukraine, but there's ways, there's cars going between Ukraine and Poland and Ukraine and other neighboring countries. There's buses, there's trains, so they've been really good with arranging that. But before that, and in the first couple of days, you actually didn't know if it might not even be possible to get into the country. So I think there was a fear in terms of that I won't physically be able to get in because you don't really know what will happen. But I, when I was leaving, I didn't think that I was leaving certainly i didn't think that was leaving for a year because now it's a year now we can say it's been a year but i certainly yeah a lot of us i think we thought that things would be over as i said before things would be over in a matter of days a couple of weeks and then we kept thinking with so a lot of ukrainians in the uk now they live with one foot out the door so they can't really plan their lives here because they kept, kept thinking that they're going to go back and i think certainly even with myself and with others i noticed that it was like yeah i'll be able to come before easter or before my birthday or there's always that hope that you'll be able to celebrate the next holiday yeah. back home and probably still exist to some matter but coming to this one year anniversary is definitely a big sort of it hits quite hard that it's been a year definitely
3: mark if i can turn to you what do we know about russia's plans for for the invasion in the initial days it seemed it seems they had this kind of this plan for a kind of blitzkrieg and they were going to Take over Ukraine and, and walk into Kiev in a matter of days. It wasn't even a, an invasion, it was a kind of police operation. Is that, and then after those initial plans failed, what I wonder if you can walk us through how the war evolved over, over the subsequent months leading up to obviously this point now?
2: Well, what's clear is that although there had been a thought of invasion of some kind, through the full period of the build-up, basically really from spring of the year before, no decision had been made. And that's crucial because what it meant is actually that the military machine, shall we say, was not engaged. You didn't have the relevant elements set up, which are usually there to ensure that the plans make sense. Everyone knows their role. There is a clear chain of command. There is an adequacy of personnel, of ammunition, of all the other material of which modern warfare is incredibly voracious in its demands. Putin, look, always likes to be the decider. He's created this system whereby you have multiple competing, feuding empires, and he's, he can just step in and decide which plan he's going to adopt and who he's going to support. And that's made a certain amount of sense politically, but turned out to be disastrous militarily. Because precisely what happened was that the military were largely kept out of the loop of any discussions, and instead this is a plan as conceived by a collection of superannuated KGB veterans who genuinely seem to have thought, because after all, these are also people who didn't believe that Ukraine was a real country and the Ukrainians wouldn't really resist, and they were being heartily assured by the intelligence services that they had a huge network of suborned Ukrainians who were ready to come out in support. In fact, what we actually have is, by all accounts is a lot of Ukrainians who are perfectly happy to take Moscow's money, just had no intention of doing anything with it. But anyway, so they really had envisaged this as being like some kind of massive scaling up of the Crimean operation, a deeply, deeply stupid idea because the circumstances were completely different. Crimea, you already had your troops in place to a large extent. There was a population, which a large portion of which was supportive anyway, and more to the point, it happened to be at a time when essentially the Ukrainian state was in near collapse and its military chain of command was basically b- broken. So total misunderstanding of the situation, but nonetheless, that's what happened because that's what Putin wanted, and Putin gets what he wants in this system. And so what we have is from about two days before the actual invasion. Clearly, that seems to have been a point where the military apparatus was fully briefed that this was happening. And the generals are scrambling to try and bring some kind of sense to this. So once that initial strike fails, and it's worth noting that it wasn't quite as obviously a done deal, as some suggest. Had the Russians been luckier, smarter, or whatever, it's possible that they might have, if not taken Kyiv, but at least been able to get to the center and actually possibly even threaten the government. But the point is, it didn't happen. And here we, we really begin to find the clash between an authoritarian who, after 23 years, as essentially the, 22 years rather, as the essential sort of dictator of your country, find it difficult to think of things not going his way, and the technocratic military commanders who are just simply trying to salvage the best of the situation. And for quite a long, some time, they fail. Instead, you get this sort of just simple attempt to just simply throw forces at Kiev, creating a situation in which the Ukrainians, who we have to note had spent eight years planning and thinking and preparing for this war, really quite effectively, we see, were able to basically not just stop the Russians in their tracks, but also deliver some devastating blows to what were the best of the Russians' forces. And then after a certain point you see the generals trying to basically or being granted the right to begin to have more control. You in due course have the withdrawal from Kyiv, once it becomes clear, a long time after it had become clear it wasn't going to succeed, and focusing on the south or southeast of the country. And at this point it becomes, shall I say, much more recognizably a military campaign rather than some kind of special operation. But even there's constant interference from the political system. And in part, this is because of Putin himself demanding victories. That's probably why he removed General Surovikin, the most recent but one overall field commander, even though he was actually doing a good job because he wasn't being aggressive enough. But also, I think, even more to the point, the systemic problems of this system. This model of competing military forces, competing political forces, has also mapped out into the battlefield. We see the regular army. We see the forces of the former pseudo-states. We see, obviously, Wagner, National Guard, Kadyrovci, a whole variety of different actors, all actually still competing for the Tsar's favour. So we still do not have what we might think of as a proper military operation. And the presence of the Chief of the General Staff, Gerasimov, in charge, I don't think is going to change. Now that we've got to that point, I
3: wonder if you can talk about the military situation, by contrast, on the Ukrainian side, clearly, as you said, the assumptions that Russia had about the cohesiveness of, of Ukraine and its effectiveness, and also about the support that Western countries would offer Ukraine were way off. If this has really shown the dysfunction of the Russian system, has it also shown how cohesive and effective Ukraine is?
2: Yes and no, which is a deeply unsatisfying answer, but let me unpack that. and Without in any way taking away from the Ukrainian success... In some ways, part of their success has actually been about a lack of cohesion. It's precisely been that they've demonstrated ingenuity and initiative on the battlefield. And what's happened is, instead of trying to stamp that out with some kind of monolithic de- decision-making process, actually the Ukrainians have gone with that and turned that into an absolute feature. The reason why I kind of stress that is because I think we, we have to acknowledge that there are characteristics of the Ukrainian state before February the 24th that are still present in terms of still a certain, although there, there is a very, obviously, a kind of a popular will to resist, there are still challenges in terms of the discipline and the structural control of the country, which we see manifest in, in, in a variety of small ways. And in some ways, there just has to be that little asterisk before we get excessively starry-eyed about the, the Ukrainian sort of military venture. But on the other hand, what is clear is that they're very far sighted in terms of they understand the degree to which Putin's strategy is now less about winning a victory on the battlefield. He will obviously happily take whatever victories he can get. But I don't think he necessarily believes that even the level two conditions for victory, which he seemed to have set, which is all of the Donbass plus the Crimean land corridor and Crimea, I don't think that's likely to be achievable. Rather, it's a matter of dragging the war out making it clear that this is for the long haul, hoping to exhaust not just Ukraine's will to resist, although good luck with that, but more to the point, Western unity and willingness to continue to dump billions every month into supporting Ukraine. Now, again, I'm not convinced that necessarily Russia can outlast the West, but the point is this is Putin's only real chance of success, so he has to believe in it. And I think the Ukrainians are demonstrating that not only are they fighting a war on the battlefield, they're also fighting a political war in the West. And so I think what we're seeing is the Ukrainians gearing up for obviously, firstly, coping with the inevitable spring of offensive that also already seems to be beginning to spool up from the Russians, but also launching their own spring and summer offensives, which I think are there to not only obviously push the Russians back, but also to reassure the West that they are getting return on their investment and to give them the hope that this will not be a war that drags out for years. And so this is why I think, for example, the decision about sending Western tanks was so important. The idea is that way they can create a heavily armoured, protected, mobile spearhead of tanks, and equally important, the well-protected infantry fighting vehicles and so forth to support them, which gives them a chance of breaking through the Russian lines. Perhaps even being able to, for example, take Melitopol, and breaking the Crimean land corridor. Something like that actually means that they can go back to the West and say, guys, don't worry, we've got this. You're not just on the right side of history, you're also on the right side of the battle. So I think this is one thing that really one has to stress is the degree to which actually Ukrainians are being very effective, not just in managing the battlefield, but also in managing the West.
5: On the point about Ukraine's cohesion itself, both militarily and politically, I guess it's one thing to achieve that with the unifying shock of an event like the 24th of February or for the first three months or six months. As we tick into the 13th month and the 14th month and the 15th month, how much longer does it look like this will hold? Is it indefinite or do we see the cracks starting to grow? One reads about Zelensky's crackdown on corruption. There seems to be a question mark over the future of the defence minister, Reznikov. Is that Team Ukraine, as it were, holding together? And should it or should there be a greater sort of churn of personnel and approaches? I wonder if I could we could hear from both of you on that. Perhaps Mark on the defence and military side, and Maria, and we, you might want to speak about the political and the social
2: dimension. But that 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 big question of where that cohesion's at now. Sure, Maria will be able to speak much more effectively to this. The point I'd make is two just two very quick points. In terms of the military cohesion, again, I don't see there being problems. There are there is inevitably clashes of personality between commanders. There are still those figures who actually have suspicions about Zelensky and are not quite sure about him. He hasn't really won the nationalists over, I think, except on a very situational level. But I don't see that as being a particularly crucial point. I do have some slight concerns about the proposed future defence minister, head of military intelligence, Kirill Obudano. Not that I think he's incompetent or anything like that, but I just feel he's a little bit more of a glory hound than Reznikov. But in terms of the anti-corruption crackdown, I think that's really interesting because that is actually, for me, not just... Zelensky going back to his servants of the People Party roots, but also very much assuaging the West who actually were beginning, or there certainly were people within the West, let's say, who were beginning to have concerns about this, and particularly in terms of how can we be sure that the huge amounts of money that are being spent are being properly accounted for and such. So it'll be interesting to see if this is just a kind of a one-off performative act, just to kind of tick a box and keep the West happy, or whether it is the genuine start of something much more systemic. But as I said, Maria will have a much better overview.
4: Yeah, well, I agree. Oh, there's a couple of points that you made. Yeah, I think the Ukrainian government does react really well to the West pressure, especially with Ukraine wanting to join the European Union and wanting to join NATO. There's definitely been a lot of steps that the government has been realizing. Oh, yeah, and we need to do that as well. I need to do this. So I think, I think it's good that this pressure is coming from the West and they are... Taking more steps now with the change of personnel, so I'm sure that this will be managed as long as there is uh, as long as there's West support and West's advice and the steps that are there are stipulated in steps such as joining the European Union and NATO. With regards to the managing how Ukrainians have been managing not just the war, but also other areas and managing the West, I think Ukraine definitely has gotten so much better since last year. Even though we had those eight years of the war, and we had the annexation and invasion and annexation of Crimea, and then we had the invasion of the Donbas. When all of that happened, you have to remember that Ukraine was not prepared for that at all. We had an army, but it wasn't really an army. It was like a Soviet legacy. It was not really a well-functioning army. And it was over the last eight years, nine years now, Ukraine had to prepare. The army had to get much better in so many areas. And there's definitely, there are mistakes that were made by the West in not reacting quicker in 2014, not reacting quicker in 2008 when Georgia was invaded. And that could have been handled better. And then we wouldn't have the situation now, but there's definitely mistakes that, Ukrainian government made with regards to Crimea. I think there was a long time when the Ukrainian government was just uh, acting as a victim rather than pro- being proactive, which is just saying that you're a victim, but not actually taking steps to return to get Crimea back. And that's changed since around 2021, when there was with the Crimea platform, with getting the West support for, for getting Crimea back. Uh, and that those are all good steps. Unfortunately, over the last eight years, as much as people in the West now see this as a sudden invasion, it wasn't a sudden invasion in 2022. Russia had been preparing for it since they captured Crimea. They built a military base there and they've been using, and had they not done that, they wouldn't be able to have gotten here, basically. They wouldn't be able to have the full-scale attacks all over the country. So there's been some lessons learned, and certainly since last year, Ukraine's been much more cohesive. And I think now with the new skills that the government has learned, I think it should hopefully stay that way.
5: Wherever you are in the world,
0: if you're interested in global affairs,
5: you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds.
0: That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America.
5: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
4: Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman Podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman Podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell
1: you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
3: Jeremy, if I can come to you, this is obviously an absolutely enormous question, but what can we say about the state of the kind of world order in the 2020s as a result of invasion, it's obviously the invasion completely upended Western assumptions about security. We're sat here in Germany and clearly it came as a particularly big shock to Germany and Germany had to completely change its approach to many things. But uh, but of course this is really, the war is seen as having reinvigorated the Western alliance, but also exposed a number of tensions. You've written about this theme of kind of Westishness. Can you explain how in your view the invasion changed world geopolitics.
5: It's worth going back to the world of the 23rd of February last year, or certainly 2021, building up to the full-scale invasion, and what theories were out there about the shape of the world order. And you go back then, and there was a lot of commentary about the West having struggled with COVID in contrast with China, for example, which seemed to have established a certain amount of normality behind the walls of its zero COVID strategy. There had been at the start of 2021, a certain... The West is back narrative around Joe Biden succeeding Donald Trump, tempered, of course, by the drama of the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th that year, and then, of course, the debacle of the pullout from Afghanistan. So you had all of those sort of narratives competing as 2021 drew to a close and 2022 began. And I think what the war has served to do is to discredit some of these more binary arguments about the state of the world. It is not true that the West is back in the sense of we're back to the 1990s. Nor is it true that we're in some new era of a Beijing consensus of the West or the of the liberal order being entirely dead. We're in some sort of transitional phase. I think that's fair to say. It's clear and. I think Germany clung to this perspective longer than most, but it's clear that the world of the immediate post-Cold War era is over. We can't talk about Western hegemony and the onward march of trade, globalisation, democratisation in the way that we could before. And that's really been obvious for a number of years already. But at the same time, we haven't Reach some new stable settled order. It's worth asking where would this narrative be now if, Marx, as Marx says, it wasn't perhaps so far away from Russia being able to take Kiev? And certainly perhaps without some of the military modernization of the years preceding, 24th of February last year, that might have happened. And from there, you get to the toppling of the Ukrainian government, possibly a very different outcome in a very different world now. And we might well be sitting here if that were the case and saying we are now in the new era of authoritarian power. Of Russia and China as a new T block that is rolling back the West's influence and the West's reach, and that isn't the case. But we're clearly in, some, as I say, in some sort of transition, and that's why I've turned to this phrase "westishness," which is a an adaptation of a word that the Munich Security Report coined in early 2021. They talked about being in a westless world, a world where after the Trump presidency, it seemed that the West, as an alliance, the West as a bloc, no longer really served a sort of Descriptive function. And my point is that we're not really in a west world. We've seen how the West came together, galvanized by the attack, has been pivotal to Ukraine's self-defense and has shown that it can, you know, that in, in many ways, it remains an alliance that can stand up to authoritarian regimes and autocracies and actually that can show the limits of those systems. We have seen in the military failures, on which I'm sure Mark can tell us more, of the Russian armed forces. The failures of a system that does not have proper checks and balances, that does not have rival poles of power, that does not have internal pluralism. We've seen that arguably to some extent in China with the debacle of its Zero Covid strategy. And I think the idea with the phrase Westishness was to try and capture something of a world where the West does remain the world's preeminent alliance. It's imperfect. In many areas, it's fraying. There are certainly internal divides within that. And I think we may see more of those in the second year of this conflict than we did in the first. But it is still at the very least first among equals among rival global poles of power. And I think we need to think in terms of, of this, those slightly more nuanced terms and in terms of this being a transitional age to what exactly we do not exactly know. And so that was my attempt to draw together what we've learned over over, over the war and how it's challenged what we previously thought.
3: And so now we're obviously a one year of war. Sadly, that doesn't seem to be any end in sight. I don't know if anyone really has a kind of clear idea of how this war ends. And I was hoping to get all of your views on this. What can we expect? For the second year of the war, is there obviously the optimism of the Ukrainian side has markedly increased as they managed to retake large swathes of land from the Russians? Clearly, there's there's an expectation that Western support will continue. To, as you, as Mark said, the tanks are an important signal of that. At the same time, clearly, Russia is signalling that it's not it's not ready to back down, and there are always these questions as to, to how long the West support will last, whether there will be any fractures in in uh, in this kind of consensus which is largely held to support Ukraine. Maria, I was wondering if you could give us the Ukrainian perspective first. What's the belief on the Ukrainian side about what can be achieved in in the next few months and over the course of, unfortunately, this war which continues?
4: I think the war has to end with the retaking of, I Donbass and Crimea and going back to the pre-2014 borders, it's very important. This is what the Ukrainian government has been saying. There is there is hope. As, as a lot of it obviously depends on the provision of weapons and ammunition from the West. And I think if they do continue that, then we will hopefully see a victory quite soon. But I think what's important for the West to understand is, and by the way, I think it's not just a Ukraine. West-East divide, I think it's more important to, to show it as a like, civilized world versus you know, the totalitarian rule and backward rule. This is the first, as Yosef Zersel, one of the very famous Jewish people in Ukraine, said that this is the first war in the history of the world, probably, where there's such a clear divide between civilized countries and backward countries. So I think if we open up this kind of what we call West now to other countries that are not necessarily to the West, I think that might open a lot more support for Ukraine, which would be great. But I think it's important to explain to the world that this is not just Ukraine's war. And as Maya Sander, the Moldovan president, recently said that there's been plans in Russia to topple the Moldovan government, that this is not just Ukraine's war to fight. And that's important. That's something that we need to continue telling tell other countries where The Ukraine fatigue is more prevalent than it is in the UK, where people support Ukraine a lot. So it's not just the war that Ukraine's fighting. We're fighting for the whole of Europe. And it's evident now from everything that we've gathered in the last year that Russia was never planning to stop in Ukraine. And they would go on to the Baltic States, to Moldova, to to Poland and other countries. And with regards to what happens after Ukraine retakes its land, I think it'd be great if Moldova and Georgia were liberated because, like, uh, as much as what is up to like one third of the of uh, Georgia is uh, currently occupied by Russia. itself. So. but that's something that we need to talk in the long term perspective. There's also there are questions of what happens to all the 22 republics within Russia because there are a lot of people there. There's a thing called Free Nations League that are fighting for the liberation of the republics because they claim that they never wanted he to never wanted the government to represent them so there's a lot of questions to be answered as a Ukrainian maybe I don't want to go too far because it's not really my place it's up to Russia to see what happens with that but the war will definitely end with the retaking of Donbass and Crimea that's when we need to put a full stop for Ukraine.
3: Mark can I ask what's your perspective on the kind of end game I know you're a bit more skeptical about the sort of or perhaps even desirability of Ukraine retaking Crimea. Can you speak a bit about how you see the conflict evolving?
2: Surely. Look, first of all, it's very hard to predict how long this is going to last. Ultimately, I believe Ukraine will win, but who knows how long. Is the war going to last yet another year? I would say something like 50-50, with the clear understanding that's how we try and sound smart when we really want to say we have no idea. Ultimately, though, the whole question is exactly what does victory mean? Now, obviously, in, in legal terms, then it, it means exactly the return to the pre-2014 boundaries. I still feel that pragmatism will probably mean, and I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm neither advocating nor decrying this, that Crimea will be the crucial part in any future negotiations, not just for the reasons that look probably for Putin, he regards control of Crimea as an existential point because precisely it. It matters to Russians in a way that no one cares about the Donbass or Mariupol or whatever. And secondly, because actually you know, we may well find the situation in which there, there is a substantial proportion of, of people within Crimea who still want to remain Russian. And again, I think the point is that will ultimately at some point need to be tested. There will have to be some kind of properly internationally monitored and indeed probably managed referendum, which will also have to include those people who fled or were pushed out of Crimea. I think this is the trouble. If this is a war for values, which it clearly is, then part of those values has to be in terms of the self-nation of peoples. It's not that I actually believe that we can say definitely, oh, Crimea will become Ukrainian or Crimea will become Russian or whatever. But I just do think that actually that's going to be probably the most complex issue on which any eventual peace talks will pivot. Final point I'd make though is... For some, this is actually precisely a war of good versus bad that has to, just as happens when, once the ring is deposited in Mount Doom, lead to the complete collapse of the armies of Mordor and the very nature of Mordor itself. If we set the bar of how this war ends, that demands that there has to be Putin and co in a war crimes tribunal in The Hague let alone these notions of the decolonization of Russia, which actually is something we'd probably end up having to impose on Russia because there's very little evidence of desire for decolonization within Russia, then actually we are more or less creating a situation in which this war is guaranteed to continue and to expand. And again, I think this is one of the the failures we've had in the West is behind this mantra of the war ends when Ukraine says it ends, which is well-meaning, but it's also a way of avoiding any real serious discussion about the end of the war. We are kicking that can down the road. We do need to have some sense of what we think the end game looks like. And Jeremy, what's your perspective on this? Do we have a
3: sense of obviously the Americans, Europeans? Do they are they coming to some sort of idea of what the end game might be, or do, are they still are they still sticking to this line that the war ends when Ukraine says it ends?
5: I think there's definitely different views of the end game. As Mark says, it's not always very clearly expressed and perhaps it would help for there to be some sort of forum or some sort of more open discussion about this. I think there are some in the West for whom it, it means total military victory, including Crimea. For others, it ends more at the negotiating table. We haven't really teased out those differences very openly yet, but that point may well come and it, it probably has to. I, I have to say, I, I do worry about cohesion of the Western Alliance back in Ukraine. As we go into the second year, and without an end in sight at the moment, there are signs of elements of war fatigue. One can overstate it, but there was a recent poll showing, for example, that a majority of Republicans in the US no longer back further support for the Ukraine obviously with the American presidential election coming year up next year, that, that's, that's concerning. There is this question of different degrees of how far, how much to the hilt Western countries want to back Ukraine militarily. In some ways, this becomes an issue the more successful Ukraine is with any spring and summer offence. If it does. Punch through the Russian land bridge and cut off Crimea or come close to cutting off Crimea, you then get the question of does Western backing involve implicit support for Ukraine trying to retake Crimea? So that then becomes another divisive issue. It's true that, to mention another factor here, that the Europe has avoided some of the worst economic scenarios over this past winter, but energy prices are still relatively high. There is still this specter of deindustrialization, and so one wonders where those the economic divides within the West, particularly between the US and Europe, could come to undermine that purpose. And then, just lingering in the background is the question of, of relations with China, which obviously isn't directly affected by the the pro- progress of the war, but which is a potentially divisive point within the Western alliance backing Ukraine. And I think it's one to watch as well on this front. So for these various reasons, I wonder where I hope the war ends before then. But if we are here in a year's time, looking back on the second year of the war, whether we will still be talking about a West that acts in as unified and as coherent a way as it has to date? I hope so, but I'm not entirely sure if it will be.
3: Just to finish, can I ask you how you think Ukrainians would respond and how Ukrainians would react if there was an indication that Western support was cooling. Like obviously expectations have risen so much over over the war and Ukrainians have shown they're capable of tremendous sacrifice and as a result that tremendous sacrifice, defying expectations again and again. And that probably has changed mindsets tremendously. And I'm just wondering, Ukrainians have to balance so many things, and am- among them is, of course, the support or otherwise of Ukraine's allies. And if there was a sense that that the allies were increasingly pushing Ukraine to make compromises, how would that be received within Ukraine?
4: Well, I don't have any reasons to believe that our government would give in to any sort of, do you call it, any compromises, basically. And I think, in terms of the West, I don't think they're stupid. I think I don't think they will. They will. Stop support. I think they understand what the drill is and how, if the West stops supporting Ukraine, that the war, as I said before, would move on to other countries. And that's something that nobody In in the US, nobody in NATO would want, nobody in the West would want. So I don't think, I don't think that we are at risk of that. And I think the Ukrainian government is doing a very good job to keep reiterating the, the threats and everything to the West. If I may correct Mark what he was saying before, if that's okay, regarding the referendum in Crimea, I want to remind that Ukraine had a referendum in 1991 and the overwhelming majority of Crimea and the whole of Ukraine I think in Crimea was around 80% voted that they wanted Ukraine to be independent. They wanted Ukraine to be a separate country. Of course, it can run another referendum, but I mean, it's quite obvious what the situation was before 2014. And we also need to remember that Tamir is the indigenous people of Crimea is Crimean Tatars, and they've been driven out from Crimea before they, they returned in the 90s. And this is their home. And they, the ones who views should be accounted. It's very clear from all the Crimean Tatar leadership that they are with Ukraine and they support Ukraine. But yes, sure, if somebody wants to do a referendum, I'm sure Ukraine can organize it, but it's very clear what the situation in Crimea was before Russia started its operation, three taking it.
3: Thank you so much, all three of you. That was really illuminating, and I hope we won't have to be back here in a year. This has been World Review for the New States. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and rate us. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Ida Vock. Thanks for listening and until next time.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen